Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, December 30th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzapfel. For the last environmental news briefing of the year, there will be a focus on the positive news stories that have occurred during 2021. The first story comes from reports in China that have announced that the giant panda is no longer officially endangered. This is due to an increase in protections by the Chinese government and an increase in natural park areas for the pandas to reside. The reports also found that bamboo, which makes up to 99% of a panda's diet, have become more tolerant to the effects of climate change, thus increasing the food supply for the pandas. These animals represent success in the world of conservation. In Central and South America, there is a movement to protect marine environments that provide important migratory routes for endangered species. The Eastern Tropical Pacific Ocean Corridor represents a joint conservation initiative between Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, and Costa Rica to combine protected waters that include the migratory paths for whale sharks, sea turtles, sharks, and other endangered ocean life. This plan extends the protected area and prevents overfishing. The Galapagos Conservation Organization believes that this is a major victory for sea life protection and may allow many species to rebound in populations. Feature meat an Israeli-based biotech company, announced this year that they have opened the world's first cultured meat factory. This facility is capable of creating 1,100 pounds of lab-grown meat every day. This is not plant-based meat products, but actual cultured lab-grown meat. This may be a popular development, as the increase in sales of similar meat substitute products have increased over the last few years. The company claims that their lab-grown meat generates 80% less greenhouse gas emissions than a normal slaughterhouse or meat packing plant would. This can potentially be an alternative to the current system in which animals such as cows release tons and tons of methane into the atmosphere annually, contributing a lot to the climate change effects. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel.
In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands talks about a new approach to PFAS, PFAS, by the EPA. That's coming up later in the program. And now for our environmental headline stories. In 2020, the oil, gas, and coal industry spent over $115 million lobbying Congress to ensure that it would obtain fossil fuel subsidies. Currently, the industry receives $15 billion of taxpayer money in direct federal subsidies every year. That amounts to a return on investment of over 13,000% for those corporations annually. The oil and gas companies that are members of the American Exploration and Production Council, an industry trade group, received federal subsidies worth at least $92 billion since 1998, accumulated hundreds of millions in environmental and other fines since the year 2000, accepted millions more in the recent COVID-19 bailout packages, fired workers, and gave CEOs lavish pay in 2020. The Stockholm Environmental Institute recently published two studies examining the impact of a range of U.S. oil and gas subsidies. The studies found that when oil prices are higher, subsidies tend to add to company profits, while when oil prices are lower, the subsidies can propel marginal drilling projects over the cusp into profitability thereby increasing production. More than 100 countries concluded a round of negotiations on global efforts to restore and protect the variety of life on Earth by pledging urgent and integrated action to achieve change across all sectors of the economy and all parts of society. While conservation advocacy groups worldwide welcomed the call for biodiversity, they also made clear that its specific commitments must be met with immediate, bold, and concrete steps. The pledge came out of a United Nations conference that was attended in person and remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which has underscored the need to reform humanity's relationship with nature. The new declaration recognizes that putting biodiversity on a path to recovery is a defining challenge of this decade. A strong political momentum is required to develop, adopt, and implement an ambitious post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Critics of the report focused on the inadequacy of vague commitments that lack accountability. The critical importance of protecting at least 30% of land and marine areas by 2030 is seen as a minimum goal. There was no plan developed during the conference for securing some obvious protections. For example, national parks and preserves need plans on how to protect and sustain their space for 10,000 years. We are in the sixth mass extinction and expect to lose at least one million plants and animal species. Of immediate need are plans to save the most vulnerable habitats, coral reefs and tropical rainforests. It may already be too late to save much of the Amazon rainforest, which is forecast to become a savanna. The Great Barrier Reef is suffering from warming and Category 5 cyclones, and 50% is now dead. An example of a need in the U.S. will illustrate the breadth of the challenge. Yellowstone National Park is our most iconic preserve. 
The reality is there isn't enough food in the park to feed the occupants year-round. Many of the elk, bison, wolves, bears, and antelope leave the park for the winter. Outside the park, many are shot. With the global human population forecast to reach 11 billion by 2100, there will be increasing pressure on wildlife. We need to formulate a long-term plan for the park. It may be necessary to fence the perimeter of the park to reduce hunting. According to the BBC, quote, a fossil fuel lobbyist is someone who is part of a delegation of a trade association or is a member of a group that represents the interests of oil and gas companies, end quote. Given that definition, there were more lobbyists at COP26, the International Climate Summit in Glasgow, than delegates from any single country. Global Witness found that 503 people with links to fossil fuel interests had been accredited to attend the climate summit. Quote, the fossil fuel industry has spent decades denying and delaying real action on the climate crisis. Their influence is one of the biggest reasons why 25 years of UN climate talks have not led to real cuts in global emissions, end quote, said Murray Worthy from Global Witness. Worthy went on to say, quote, what we are seeing is the putting forward of false solutions that appear to be climate action, but actually preserve the status quo and prevent us from taking the clear, simple actions to keep fossil fuels in the ground that we know are the real solutions to the climate crisis, end quote. Another notable fact about the climate summit and fossil fuel lobbyists is that lobbyists were members of 27 country delegations, including Canada and Russia. Also, the fossil fuel lobby at COP was larger than the combined total of the eight delegations from the countries most affected by the climate crisis in the last 20 years. Further, more than 100 fossil fuel companies were represented at COP. As to the indigenous constituency, fossil fuel lobbyists outnumbered them by about two to one. Winemaking is moving worldwide. In France, the climate has gotten warmer, leading to some years of low yields. All regions in France are threatened with frequent heat waves stimulating fungal diseases, intense rain events causing rot, and warming periods exposing buds to frost. Winemaking in the UK is growing by leaps because the climate is trending toward that seen in France decades ago. There does not seem to be a similar effect yet in Indiana. Michigan produces almost twice the number of bottles as Indiana, and that production comparison is holding steady. Because Indiana's climate is too warm for many grape varieties, this state imports much of its juice from California. The greater Traverse City area, which includes the peninsulas of Lilanu and Old Mission, is one of the primary wine regions of Michigan. The soil is sandy with good drainage, and a lake-dominated climate allows a longer growing season than in most of the U.S. Midwest. Fifty-one percent of Michigan's wine grapes are grown in this area. The same advantages exist to a slightly lesser degree on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan south of Grand Rapids in the Finville and Lake Michigan shore regions. Forty-five percent of Michigan's wine grapes are grown in this area. 
As of 2018, there were 3,050 acres under wine grape cultivation and 148 commercial wineries in Michigan, producing 11 million liters of wine. Michigan is one of the foremost U.S. states in production of diverse varieties of bottled fermented fruit wine. Fruit wine has a long history in Europe, especially in regions such as Poland and the Baltic states, where grapes do not grow easily. In Michigan, apple wine and cherry wine are produced in the highest volume, but other fruit juices are fermented as well. Michigan is the leading state for tart cherry production. A number of Michigan wineries produce cherry wine, spiced cherry wine, and cherry grape blends. Michigan is a North American leader in the production of fortified fruit wines and fruit brandy. Fat Bear Week, hosted every year by the Katma Conservancy, allows the public to vote for which Alaskan bear will be the chunkiest before going into hibernation. After making a donation to a charity, people got to vote for one of the lardacious leviathan levels, Chunky Challengers. On Fat Bear Tuesday this year, it was October 6th, the Adipose Award went to Bear 747, affectionately nicknamed Jumbo Jet. The brown bear weighs at least 1,400 pounds, something that will help him make it comfortably through the cold winter. Indiana is a major breeding ground for monarch butterflies, but habitat destruction and the climate crisis are threatening the pollinators' native Midwestern territories. The number of Midwestern monarch butterflies has declined rapidly in recent decades, but a new bill pending in Congress could stabilize their population. The bipartisan Recovering America's Wildlife Act would allocate nearly $1.4 billion annually to states to implement new conservation strategies for many imperiled species. Emily Wood from the Indiana Wildlife Federation says the money would increase the state's current conservation budget more than tenfold. Wood commented, quote, So here in Indiana, if that legislation were to pass, we'd be adding about $14 million to our conservation budget, which now typically receives less than a million. We have less than a million dollars to handle all the 150 species with our state wildlife action plan, end quote. In 2017, the most recent year for which data are available, a census of Hoosier monarchs tallied about 193,000 butterflies, down from more than 1.2 million 20 years earlier. Wood says the act would not specifically target Hoosier monarchs for conservation, but she explains that helping the state's other threatened species will provide positive benefits for the butterflies. She said, quote, when you restore habitat for a lot of other threatened and endangered species here in the state of Indiana, you are also restoring monarch habitat, end quote. Environmental groups petitioned to add the monarch to the federal endangered species last year. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service rejected the request, determining that the butterfly warrants listing, but that there aren't enough funding and resources to handle its widespread conservation. And now for our feature, IER reporter Enrique Sanz talks about a new approach to PFAS, PFAS, by the EPA. PFAS chemicals, which number in the thousands, have been linked to a series of adverse health conditions, including an increased risk of developing kidney and testicular cancer, 
increased blood cholesterol levels, increased risk of high blood pressure or preeclampsia, increased blood cholesterol levels, increased risk of high blood pressure or preeclampsia, and decreased vaccine response in children. The chemicals have been called forever chemicals due to their persistence, meaning they don't break down and instead accumulate in the human body and the environment. PFAS chemicals have been found in the blood of 97% of Americans. Until recently, most state and federal governments didn't require companies to report when they used or released PFAS chemicals. As a result, we really don't know if Hoosiers are being contaminated by PFAS chemicals. With that in mind, and a new federal administration targeting the chemicals for regulation, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management set out to test community water systems for 18 of the PFAS chemicals in three phases. First up, water systems in a state that serve between 3,300 and 10,000 people. The agency recently released limited preliminary results. PFAS chemicals were found in the treated drinking and untreated water in two community water systems, Indiana American Water's Charlestown Water System in Clark County and the Morgan County Rural Water Corporation. PFAS was also detected in only the untreated water of two other communities, the Hartford City Waterworks in Blackford County and Aurora Utilities in Dearborn County. The results do not indicate an immediate health risk to the members of the community where PFAS was found, but long-term exposure could result in some negative health effects. The agency said none of the community water systems had results that were above the US EPA's non-enforceable lifetime health advisories for PFOS and PFOA. The health advisories are a suggested limit on the two chemicals that serves as one of the only existing federal regulations on PFAS. PFOS and PFOA are only two of thousands of PFAS chemicals. Other PFAS chemicals are largely unregulated in Indiana. Right now, the federal government only requires companies to report several dozen PFAS chemicals, leaving the public in the dark about chemicals that could be produced or used near them. By some estimates, up to 200 million people in the U.S. could be receiving tap water tainted with at least low levels of PFAS. PFAS chemicals have been found to travel from industrial facilities to groundwater and eventually into downstream drinking water. A study in North Carolina, the home state of current EPA Administrator Michael Reagan, found that air and water emissions of PFAS chemicals from a Kimor's company facility made their way into groundwater near the facility and into five tributaries of the Cape Fear River. The PFAS made its way to the river, impacting downriver drinking water supplies and fish living in the river. The Indiana communities where PFAS chemicals were detected are all downstream from potential industrial sources of PFAS chemical pollution. Indiana American Water's Charlestown Water System and Aurora Utilities are located near the Ohio River, long known as a dumping ground for unregulated PFAS chemicals from industrial sources upriver. IDEM detected perfluorohexanoic acid, a PFAS chemical used on food packaging and household products, and perfluorooctanoic acid, also known as PFOA, a PFAS chemical used to make Teflon and other products in the Charlestown water system. IDEM detected another PFAS chemical similar to PFOA called PFNA in untreated water used by Aurora Utilities. The movie Dark Water, starring Mark Ruffalo, recently featured the story of attorney Rob Bellot's struggle 
to connect a series of health problems around a DuPont production facility in Parkersburg, West Virginia, that used PFOA, also known as C8, to health issues in the surrounding community. Other potential upstream PFAS sources include the Ineos USA LLC chemical manufacturing facility in Addiston, Ohio, which produces PFAS chemicals and polymers, and similar facilities along the Ohio River. Indiana American Water, which purchased the Charlestown water system in 2019, said it has invested more than $4 million in the aging water system and has begun construction on a new $16 million water treatment facility designed to enable the addition of a PFAS removal process in the future. The company said the facility is expected to be completed and placed in service in mid-2022. PFAS contamination is also affecting water systems along other waterways. ITEM found evidence of PFBS, a PFAS chemical used in water and stain-resistant coatings, and perfluorohexanoic acid like at Charlestown at the Morgan County Rural Water Corporation. The corporation pumps groundwater from its well-field in Morgan County supplied from the White River. The PFAS pollution that passes from the river to groundwater could come from multiple chemical, plastic, and petroleum industrial manufacturers or hazardous waste facilities in Indianapolis. The Environmental Working Group in 2020 compiled a list of suspected PFAS users, finding 14 Indianapolis facilities suspected of using PFAS, including chemical, metal, and cosmetics manufacturers. All are along the White River or waterways that feed into it, potentially allowing the transport of PFAS chemicals downriver. IDEM said it detected PFOS in the Hartford City Waterworks system, a PFAS chemical that could be coming from sources a short distance away. A Hartford City water plant sits along Little Lick Creek, upstream from a water plant or at least two potential sources of PFAS, the new Indy Hartford City Mill and the 3M Hartford City plant. IDEM has not said when it will release preliminary results for the remaining systems tested in the first phase of testing or when it would finalize the first batch of results. The agency said it has begun taking samples from water systems in the second phase of testing, made up of those water systems serving less than 3,300 people. At the federal level, the EPA has begun the process to add four PFAS chemicals, PFOA, PFOS, PFBS, and Gen X, to the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act hazardous constituents list. That addition would give the EPA authority to require investigation and cleanup for those four PFAS chemicals. The U.S. House of Representatives in August passed the PFAS Action Act of 2021, a bill that would require the EPA, among other things, to designate some PFAS chemicals as hazardous substances under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, otherwise known as the Superfund Law. That designation would allow the EPA to clean up areas polluted with PFAS chemicals under the Superfund program. That bill is now being considered by the U.S. Senate. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. 
All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Usher in 2022 with other outdoor lovers at one of the many first-day hikes taking place on Saturday, January 1st, 2022. For the first-day hike at Morgan Monroe State Forest, meet at the office parking lot from 9 to 10 a.m. for this guided hike on an accessible trail. The first-day hike of 2022 will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 1, 2022, from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Take either the long or short hike, then meet at the Spring Mill Inn for refreshments in the Lakeview Room. The long hike starts at 9 a.m. on Trail 3, which is partially rugged. The short hike begins at 10 a.m. on Trail 6, which is short, easy, and paved. While indoors, you must wear a mask. Plan now to participate in the 9th Annual First Day Trail Run and Walk at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, January 1, 2022, from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. This is an untimed, non-competitive run-walk. Choose from a 3.7-mile, 2.9-mile, or 1.3-mile course. Advanced registration is online at bit.ly forward slash first day run 2022. You may also register the same day between 2.15 and 3.15 at the Bayview Shelter. If you go indoors, you must wear a face mask. The Indiana Audubon Society is offering a 2022 tropical kickoff Costa Rica virtual birding experience on Sunday, January 2nd from 8 to 9 a.m. Experience Papa's Place in Costa Rica, which will take you to the mythical Arenal Volcano and view all the wonderful birds of the Foothill Rainforest. Read more about this Zoom event on the Indiana Audubon Society website. To participate, go to the IAS website and look for the Zoom link. Take a winter beginner's bird hike at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, January 9, 2022, from 1 to 2 p.m. Meet Morgan at the Lakeview Activity Center front patio for a hike around the lake while learning about overwintering birds. This will be a moderately rugged one-mile hike. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weisemfel. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly, that's me, compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered 
today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 